This is Up Close, the research talk show from the University of Melbourne, Australia. I'm Eric Van Bemmel. Thanks for joining us. Marijuana users have been catching a break lately in parts of the world where old laws prohibiting cannabis use are undergoing review, being softened or rolled back entirely. As political momentum builds toward further decriminalization or outright commercialization of the once evil weed, what is the state of the science regarding cannabis? It turns out we're still learning about marijuana and the spectrum of positive uses that some of its active ingredients appear to offer us. From cancer patients to epileptic children to people in chronic pain, possibly to those suffering post-traumatic stress disorder and to others, marijuana has been shown or at least holds promise to yield considerable therapeutic advantage. Alongside a fuller understanding of the pluses, however, there's continuing research into marijuana's minuses, particularly for developing brains. To give us a clinical researcher's view of the pros and cons of cannabis as we know them today, we're joined by Professor David Castle, Chair of Psychiatry at St. Vincent's Health and the University of Melbourne. David's clinical and research interests include cannabis abuse, schizophrenia and related disorders, and bipolar disorder. He's a highly cited researcher who's published over 500 papers and co-authored or co-edited some 20 books, most recently Marijuana and Madness a book which looks at the broad range of issues on cannabis use and mental illness. David, welcome to Up Close. Thank you so much for having me. Now, David, we live in an era in which cannabis is still largely prohibited, seen as immoral, but that hasn't always been the case, has it? Well, cannabis has been the most widely used illicit drug in the world for many, many years, hundreds, if not thousands of years. People have tended to use it mostly for its sort of soporific effects. And as you've indicated in your intro, um, there's some other psychotomimetic effects. And also increasingly, we're understanding some of the effects on developing brain in particular, and especially of very high potency cannabis. So if we look at the very long history and trajectory of cannabis use, I think that we need to contextualize that, that that was using mostly natural plant product, which was relatively benign in terms of its psychotermometic and by psychotomimetic, I mean the ability to induce psychotic symptoms in individuals, those effects were much softer than more recent cannabis, which is grown hydroponically and certain strains, uh, which are really very, very potent. Before we look at the cannabis plant and its effects in some more detail, let's look at the cannabinoid properties of the human body. Researchers now know that the body, the human body, and I guess other mammals, produce endocannabinoids. Can you tell us what they are exactly and and why they're in our body? So the two main systems, cannabinoid systems in the brain, one is mediated by a receptor called the cannabinoid CB1 receptor, and the other is mediated by a receptor called the cannabinoid CB2 receptor. The CB2 receptor is largely in the body and related to immune systems, so it occurs in the spleen, for example. There is some central nervous system expression of that receptor, uh, but the most important one, or the one in which most of the psychiatric effects pertain, are through the CB1 receptor, cannabinoid CB1 receptor. And there is a naturally occurring substrate for that receptor, uh, and that's called anandamide, um, which comes from the Sanskrit word for bliss, um, which I suppose speaks to some of the soporific properties of cannabis. Now, this endocannabinoid system in the human body 
was only really discovered quite recently, something like 20 years ago. So THC, which is tetrahydrocannabinol, which is the psychoactive property or moiety within the cannabis plant, and it's a very complex plant with thousands of chemicals in it, of course. That was synthesized in the 60s by a chap called Rafael Meshulam in Israel. But you're right that the understanding of the cannabinoid system and the expression of the receptor in the central nervous system is only relatively recent discovery and has been now investigated over the last, say, 20 years in more detail. And it seems that the one plant on Earth that produces a a similar compound that hits those same receptors is marijuana. That's correct. So we're chock full of cannabis-like molecules ourselves, these endocannabinoids and their receptors. Um, Let's get to cannabis itself now, the plant, and a couple of the principal compounds that give the plant uh, its fame and reputation and its value as well. You mentioned THC, of course, well, there are two main chemicals which we are interested in in psychiatry, I guess. The one is THC, which causes the psychotic-like phenomena. The other is something called cannabidiol or CBD. And it seems like uh, CBD is sort of the softer side of the cannabis plant, and it seems to ameliorate some of the effects or buffer some of the effects of THC. Now, in the good old days, as they say in the 60s, natural cannabis plants would have had relatively modest amount of THC, matter of 2 to 5%, and quite a lot of cannabidiol. So it was relatively benign. Nowadays, you're seeing what's sometimes referred to as skunk, these very high-potency cannabis plants with very high THC, so 20 25% THC and very little cannabidiol. So you're getting a much bigger hit of the psychoactive moiety. So this cannabidiol, which sort of moderates the effect of THC, is being bred out of the that, skunk, right? That's Quite correct. deliberately. That's correct. And also um, now, of course, we're seeing synthetics. So they're producing synthetic THC-like molecules, and then they basically spray it onto a plant product and sell it, things like Chronic. And these are obviously very high potency because they've got no CBD. Chronic is like a brand name. Sure, it's one of the brands. Uh, there are lots of them, and every time they get into the market and then cause trouble and get legislated against, they just tweak the molecule and create another molecule. So it's very difficult to police and regulate. These synthetics are effectively legal until there's legislation against them, then they're quickly changed and they're legal again, in a sense. That's correct. And it's a very difficult area to try and control. Now, going back to the plant, though, um, THC, I understand, is sort of locked up in an acidic form, THCA, it's called, but you have to burn it, in other words, smoke it. Or well, bake can, it to get the THC, right? Well, you can smoke it, and that's probably the most commonly used way of imbibing it, but you can eat it, so cannabis cookies and things like that. I mean, the fact that it is smoked, um, often in Australia it's actually smoked with tobacco, so it carries all of those risks associated. It also burns very, very hot, so it's associated with upper respiratory tract problems and mouth cancers and other things as well. You know, all of the other effects. Akin to tobacco. Correct, but it burns hotter than tobacco. So, David, uh, cannabidiol, that other key cannabinoid component of the cannabis plant, the one that doesn't really get us high but tends to moderate the effects of THC, can you tell us a bit more about that and, and its promise as an active ingredient? Yeah, so cannabidiol, as I said, sort of buffers the effects of THC in the plant and when it's imbibed. But there's an interest in it in and of itself because um, there's some studies coming out of uh, Germany in particular which show that cannabidiol might have antipsychotic properties. So has been used as an adjunctive treatment usually in the treatment of schizophrenia with some efficacy and relatively few side effects. So looking at the whole cannabinoid system in this way, I think, could not only inform our understanding more of mental illness, 
and maladies of the mind, but also could potentially be therapeutic. I'm Eric Van Bemmel, and on Up Close this episode, we're speaking about the state of the science regarding cannabis, not only the impact of its use, but also emerging understanding of its clinical value with psychiatrist and clinical researcher Professor David Castle. Up Close comes to you from the University of Melbourne, Australia. David, turning to some of the important medical issues that come about from sustained use of cannabis, particularly on the developing brain. Can you tell us what we know about that these days? There's a lot of work now, animal work and some human work, which shows that there are impacts of cannabis on the developing brain. Cannabis does cross the placenta. It also is excreted in breast milk. Obviously, those periods of exquisite sensitivity of the developing brain and there are subtle impacts of this in animal models and in humans, and they related to things like the cortisol response. So cortisol is a stress hormone. If you give rats in utero exposure to cannabis, they're more likely to have a high stress response or cortisol response when they're born. And there's also some transient effects on the cannabinoid receptor system itself. I should say, though, that uh, you need to counterpoise this sort of discourse against the impact of other illicit and licit drugs. So undoubtedly smoking cigarettes, nicotine has a massive effect in terms of in utero development and alcohol, of course, which is a highly available and legal drug has very profound effects on the developing brain, arguably much more than cannabis. So we need to counterpoise these things. When we're talking about the developing brain, we don't just mean, of course, these sort of embryonic or infant states, but even up into one's early 20s. Well, uh, yes, uh, one, one flatters oneself that the brain keeps on developing and is more plastic for longer than we thought, but certainly up to the mid-20s. And high-potency cannabis use in adolescence, I think, is a real potential concern for us because there's evidence that it can impair cognitive functioning. And if you are laying down the bedrocks of your intellect and learnings, in your teens and you are using high-potency cannabis at the same time, you're going to be behind the eight ball. That's a potential real concern. Can you tell us what sort of effects we're talking about? Well, there's two main areas to look at. One is association with mental illness, particularly depression, because that's quite prevalent. But of course, you need to look at whether this is a causal association or not, and what leads to what. It's a bit of a chicken and egg thing, but the most evidence is that depression leads to cannabis use rather than the other way around. The other part of it is on cognitive functioning. So there's some studies from the States and from the Netherlands showing teenagers who've used very high-potency cannabis for a long period of time, they do have difficulties in certain cognitive function, especially abstraction and various other cognitive functions. And it seems that if you scan their brains while they're engaged in these psychological tasks, their brain is having to work harder for the same result. So, as I said, it's putting these kids behind the eight ball. We're not talking about when they're stoned. We're talking about when they're not stoned. Yeah, when you're stoned, of course, your ability to function cognitively is undoubtedly impaired and your short-term memory is impaired, but that's during intoxication. Here we're talking about longer-term, more enduring effects. The other thing, though, you do need to uh, bear in mind with all of these investigations is that often there's comorbid problems associated with other drugs as well. So cannabis use exclusively, uh, especially heavy use, is, is relatively unusual. Usually people are also smoking cigarettes and tobacco, usually also using alcohol and 
potentially other drugs. The other thing is that you've got to be aware that cannabis, if you're a heavy user, sits around in your brain for a very long time because it sits in the fat in the brain. How long? Well, up to a month, actually. So that if you were to be a chronic heavy user, you could be still excreting THC in your urine for up to a month after last use. So if you really want to assess whether there's enduring cognitive problems associated, you've got to wash people out for about 28 days. So it's difficult with the comorbidity, the, the use of other drugs perhaps or, or mm. mental illness, to sure. tease out just what cannabis the effect is. Very difficult. There's some work, in fact, from our own university showing that chronic heavy users of cannabis do have some subtle abnormalities in terms of brain structure, also brain function. But this is uh, relatively small effects. And again, putting it in context, if you looked at somebody who was a heavy user of alcohol for their whole life, their brain would be much more impaired, both functionally and structurally than people who'd used cannabis. That's not to say cannabis is totally benign in this regard, but just to put it in context. Sure. David, uh, outside the scientific community at least, I'd say that opinions divided on whether cannabis is addictive or not. What's your take? There's no doubt that it's addictive. Um, By addiction, we generally mean dependence, which means that you become somewhat tolerant to the effect, so you need more and more for the same effect, and also that you get a withdrawal. With cannabis, you don't get so much the tolerance, and I think that that's partly because chronic heavy users have a a sort of plateau of it in their system all the time, sits in the fat in the brain, and you sort of top it up with every other exposure. So you don't get so much tolerance. In fact, a lot of heavy users say they learn to use it very effectively. What you do get, though, is withdrawal, It's not nearly as dramatic a withdrawal as something like nicotine, but it certainly occurs. Some of what we see in mental health units, because a lot of people coming into acute mental health units have been using cannabis, some of what we see and interpret as psychotic symptoms or agitation or anxiety is part and parcel of a cannabis withdrawal syndrome as well as ongoing psychotic symptoms. Doesn't addiction also um, require there to be some impact on life or on relationships? There's no doubt that cannabis can have a massive impact on people's lives. There was a lot of interest in the so-called motivational syndrome. If you give people heavy cannabis for a long period of time, you decrease their motivation. They become very apathetic. There's some nice experiments where they gave people a reward-based task. When they gave them cannabis, their interest in pursuing the task to get the reward, be it financial reward or other reward, just diminishes. So it sort of becomes a couldn't care less sort of attitude. That's certainly well described. And that can impact on your life. Also, unfortunately, cannabis also not unusually leads to other drug use. There's a lot of debate about it as a so-called gateway drug. And there's some neurobiological evidence that it primes the brain in certain ways, especially if it's used early and and in high volume. Um, And the other way in which it can impact on life in general is when it leads to depression, leads to psychotic symptoms, and especially in those people who are very vulnerable to psychosis. It can also have all the other effects associated with addiction, which include spending more and more of your money on it, it becoming more and more the most important thing in your life, and pursuing it relentlessly and without regard for other things in life. And neglecting one's relationships to some extent. Absolutely, yeah. You talk about psychosis. Can it induce something like schizophrenia? Well, we need to be careful here because um, schizophrenia is a serious mental illness. People often equate that with psychosis. Psychosis is a much broader term, which refers usually to 
the brain manifesting and the person experiencing psychotic symptoms, which are broadly divided into delusions, which are abnormal beliefs, so usually persecutory, people being against you, trying to harm you, and so forth, and hallucinations, which are abnormal phenomena, classically hearing voices. So there's no doubt that THC can induce psychosis in just about everybody. Um, temporarily. Temporarily, and it depends on the dose and your previous exposure and, and, and so forth. This is AKA being stoned. Yeah, yeah. And it's just psychotomimetic effects is the, the word you use. Correct, yeah, they're temporary. However, in some individuals, if they're more prone to psychosis, and we know that some people in the general population, so about 10 to 15% of the general population, would de novo experience psychotic-like phenomena in their lives, you give those individuals cannabis, they're more likely to have a more psychotic-like reaction to it. It's a bit like somebody with glucose intolerance, but not diabetes, glucose intolerance people eating sweets they would be more likely to have a spike in their blood sugar than the rest of the population. They're predisposed on some Predisposed. Level. And then to take that analogy a little bit further, schizophrenia would be the equivalent of having fair dinkum diabetes. And schizophrenia is a disorder of the brain. It's associated with abnormalities, particularly in dopamine systems. And we know that one of the effects of THC is to uh, moderate dopamine and dopamine release. So you give somebody with schizophrenia cannabis, and people with schizophrenia use a lot of it, they become more psychotic, almost universally. This is Up Close, coming to you from the University of Melbourne, Australia. I'm Eric Van Bemmel. In this episode, we're speaking with psychiatrist and clinical researcher Professor David Castle about cannabis, how it works, what it does to us, and how we're better understanding its therapeutic utility. David, you mentioned that people with schizophrenia will take to things like marijuana, mm. perhaps in greater quantities than others or more frequently. Why is that the case? We've actually done quite a lot of research in this. And when you ask people uh, with schizophrenia why they use, it seems that the most profound driver is to diminish what we would term negative affect. So things like boredom, anxiety, insomnia, these sorts of quite general reasons for use, which are actually similar to why people in the general population use. But people with schizophrenia, unfortunately for them, have more of this negative affect, partly because of their illness, sometimes also because of some of the medications we use, which make them have these feelings. So that's mostly what drives use. There's also some social conformity reasons, there's some enhancement reasons. But it used to be put about that it was to self-medicate, and people don't self-medicate the positive symptoms of psychosis like delusions and hallucinations, most of them recognize that cannabis actually makes that worse, but they're self-medicating the sort of negative affect symptoms. And that's really important therapeutically. So if you want to engage somebody with schizophrenia in a discussion about the adverse reactions of cannabis for them, and it makes their illness worse, there's no doubt about it, and associated with relapse and rehospitalization and everything else, the discourse needs to start with an understanding about why they're using and we actually do have some programs looking at that particularly to sort of hook into a discussion. Just telling people not to use without trying to understand why they use, I think, is um, on a hiding to nothing. In the general population, do we know how prevalent cannabis use is? Prevalence of cannabis use varies a lot across different jurisdictions. If there was a study of 16-year-olds across Europe, the highest rate of use, interestingly, was in France, uh, where it's about 14%, I think. And in Sweden, was very low at 1%. 
compared to, say, the Netherlands, where you've it's essentially it's illegal? M- it's about mid-range in the Netherlands, and uh, Netherlands not dissimilar to Australia. The legal drugs out there, tobacco and alcohol, mm-hmm. are... Uh, comparatively, far more dangerous than cannabis, are they not? Well, our government has actually done very well with regard to reduction in cigarette smoking. Um, So we're down to about 15% in the general population, which is actually very good. Uh, We still have a big problem with people with mental illness smoking cigarettes. About half of the cigarettes smoked in Australia would be associated with mental illness, and uh, about 70 to 80% of people with schizophrenia smoke cigarettes. Again, you know, probably driven by cognitive and other problems associated with the illness. Uh, but alcohol is a massive problem. And, you know, if you think about it, you go to a, a football match, kids with you at your football match, everyone's drinking, and also they're advertising alcohol. Uh, alcohol is so available, and alcohol is a nasty, nasty drug. A lot of people can use it in moderation reasonably, but a lot of people can't. And most of the violence and aggression which we see in the streets um, on a Friday night are not due to cannabis. It's due mostly to alcohol and then increasingly crystal meth use as well. And road fatalities as well. Yeah, they are implicating cannabis in some of the road fatalities too. But as it happens, although cannabis acutely intoxication does impair your ability to respond effectively in a driving environment, people are actually rather more aware of this and will tend to slow down or take aversive action. Alcohol has the opposite effect. It makes you sort of more, as I say, face the traffic with confidence, you know, and you go out and you tend to speed and you tend to be more likely to jump red lights and so forth. And of course, speed or um, uh, crystal meth um, is one of the variants. Um, That really leads to very bad driving behaviors. Does it? Oh, absolutely, because you're sped up and revved up. And Mm. I mean, the scariness of thinking about how many long-haul truck drivers are using variants of amphetamines. To stay awake on the long haul. Yeah. In the United States, annually, 560,000 people die from uh, tobacco and alcohol, if we group those two together. We don't really have any figures on cannabis-related deaths, do we? No, and it's difficult to tease apart because, you know, as I said, cannabis use is often associated with other things, tobacco, smoking, alcohol, and so forth. But the other side of this, which I haven't spoken all that much about, is the medicinal uses of cannabis. You alluded to this in your intro, and I think it's a bit unfortunate that this drug, which has very profound effects on the brain and can undoubtedly be useful medicinally, so you mentioned pain syndromes, nausea associated with cancer, spasms associated with multiple sclerosis. These are horrible for people. And for them to be able to use cannabis in a medically controlled way, I think is something which we really should be exploring uh, with a much more open mind and not be as distracted by the potential adverse consequences associated with the mental illness problems. Does medical marijuana actually present a credible alternative to conventional drugs for these various applications? Oh, yes. We use drugs like opiates, which are highly addictive, and cannabis could come into the mix in a similar sort of controlled manner, in my view. The other thing which is not spoken about all that much is the environmental benefits of cannabis. So you can breed strains of the cannabis plant, which has pretty much zero THC, as they say. You can smoke a whole field of it, and all you'll have at the end of the day is a headache. It's very easy to grow. It doesn't take much rain to make it grow. Um, it can be a substitute for wood chip and various other things. So Hemp. 
yeah, hemp clothing, what used to be example. used for you know, all sorts of things and soaps. All the sails in the world used to be made out of hemp. You know, I think it's rather tragic that we're logging old-growth forests and making wood chip out of trees when we could be potentially growing cannabis in a controlled manner, cannabis without any THC, and using that instead. David, as I indicated earlier, cannabis is being decriminalized or fully legalized, commercialized in, in parts of the world. We're seeing in the United States in particular, uh, recreational use is now legal in four states. That will probably grow. Medicinal use is legal in 23 more states. There are marijuana startups. There's now Willie Nelson and Bob Marley branded trademarked marijuana ready to go for when this commercialization hits big time. I guess that leads to the question, if it's going to get easier to get become normalized in society, are we going to see more cannabis use? Are we going to see addiction perhaps skyrocket? Well, I wouldn't like to see a situation in which we advocating cannabis use to people in the sort of way in which you are indicating might occur. But if we take a step back from that sort of free market tiering, if you like, and profit making, you could again make the point certain foodstuffs are extremely bad for you but are marketed and readily available. <laughs> Alcohol, as I said, um, very strongly marketed. Again, I think there needs to be more consistency of approach around these things. We should probably respond to this sort of question by looking at the experience in other countries. So Netherlands is the obvious example. And there wasn't you know, a massive increase in the use after it was made more available. And it's made available in a fairly restricted manner. You also know what you're getting. So if you go into a coffee shop in the Netherlands, you would know what you're getting and you know how much THC and how much cannabidiol is in the product which you're getting. It carries all the health warnings and all this sort of stuff. And um, it seems that there might be some benefits to that in not leading people to get involved in a sort of underclass of uh, drugs and illegalities, which can often, if you're scoring cannabis, you can also be introduced to other drugs. Whereas if it's a more controlled sort of environment, you can get away from that potential risk, um, to some degree at least. Also, you know, it could be, as is the case in Australia with tobacco, very highly taxed and regulated, and there obviously should be this, to my mind anyway, the same caveats around its use, certainly as a smoked product, um, that you can't do that in public places because you've got passive smoking and, and all of those issues which go on. People need to be very aware of the potential risks associated with cannabis use as they need to be aware of the potential risks associated with alcohol, and we don't do that well enough, I don't think, the potential risks associated with certain foodstuffs which have additives and have high sugar loads and are really, really bad for you. I think that we need to be much more pushing public awareness across the board with regard to these things rather than having very mixed approaches where some things are vilified, <laughs> like cannabis, and other things are actively promoted, like alcohol. Mm. And alcohol is a nasty, bad drug when it's used in excess, it really is. We've got now a sort of a, a chance, now that we're on the cusp of fully liberalizing it, if trends are to continue with cannabis, to get the social engineering right, where we haven't perhaps in the past with junk foods and mm. alcohol. Mm. Just finally, David, cannabis research, it's ongoing, obviously. There's some promising stuff out there. I've read recently uh, in Spain, they're looking at the potential of uh, using cannabinoids to retard the growth of brain tumors, for example. Uh, Canada's considering a clinical trial uh, on testing medical marijuana for military and police veterans with PTSD. Mm -hmm. uh, I've read about heroin-addicted rats given cannabidiol. 
decreases their willingness to work hard for heroin, which may have some application for human heroin addicts. A lot of promising stuff out there. I'm sure there's mm. a lot more. Mm. But remember that marijuana, is, it, it's got a stigma attached to it. It's immoral. I imagine it's hard as a researcher to pass ethics committees to even access material. What are we to do? I think this touches on a very important issue. And I've written elsewhere, it's unfortunate that the medical investigations and psychiatric investigations of the potential benefits of marijuana gets uh, lost in the political furore and the sort of public perception and almost stigma against the drug. Um, look at the opiates. I mean, they're nasty, addictive drugs in many ways, but, you know, we use them in a controlled manner and they are um, regulated and so forth. You know, we could have a similar thing. Certainly, we need to do much more research in this area. I mean, we are still not very good at treating a whole lot of things like chronic pain syndromes, a lot of mental illnesses, post-traumatic stress disorder you've mentioned, sleep disorders, a lot of these things. If we could investigate them properly and we could make cannabis or cannabinoid derivatives available in a controlled and sensible way, that, to my mind, would be better than people just doing it themselves, using a plant product, which is now very difficult to know what's in it and using it in a very uncontrolled way and without proper education around it of the risks associated. I think that we really need to take another look at this. Professor David Castle, thanks for being our guest on Up Close. Thank you very much indeed. We've been speaking about cannabis use and abuse with Professor David Castle, Chair of Psychiatry at St. Vincent's Health and the University of Melbourne. For a full transcript and more information on this and all our episodes, head to the UpClose website. UpClose is a production of the University of Melbourne, Australia. This episode was recorded on the 20th of May, 2015, and produced by me, Eric Van Bemmel. Audio engineering by Gavin Neighbor. UpClose is created by Kelvin Perham and me. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, goodbye. been listening to Up Close. For more information, visit upclose.unimel.edu.au. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. Copyright 2015, the University of Melbourne.